The following Downstage Center program was originally broadcast in May 2008. Welcome to Downstage Center, a presentation of XM Satellite Radio and the American Theatre Wing. I'm John von Susten, Program Director of XM28 on Broadway. And I'm Howard Sherman, Executive Director of the American Theatre Wing. Today we welcome the well-known actor Patrick Stewart, who, of course, to television and movie audiences, has been known for years as Captain Jean-Luc Picard in seven seasons of Star Trek The Next Generation, four Star Trek feature films, as Professor Charles Xavier in the X-Men films. What many of the moviegoers and television viewers may not know is that Patrick Stewart's career goes back half a century to 1958 in his native England. He has done, when I say dozens, I mean dozens upon dozens upon dozens of productions, both in England and in this country. Country. Many Shakespearean productions, many others. Let me just hit a few of the highlights out of the playbill. The Tempest, Henry IV, The Winter's Tale, Titus Andronicus, Anthony and Cleopatra, Merchant of Venice, A Midsummer Night's Dream, The Iceman Cometh, Hedda Gabler, Uncle Vanya, Coriolanus, Julius Caesar, Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf, The Ride Down to Mount Morgan, The Tempest, In Central Park and on Broadway, Othello in Washington, and of course, A Christmas Carol. We'll get to many of those during the next hour, but welcome to Patrick Stewart. Thank you, John. I'm happy to be here. One thing I did not mention is starring as Macbeth here on Broadway for the first time, playing the role of Macbeth in a production that started in Chichester, England, later transferred to the West End, then transferred across the ocean to the Brooklyn Academy of Music, known as BAM, and now at the Lyceum Theater on uh, on Broadway. It's been a long journey. (laughs) It's been the most extraordinary journey. Uh, The production is almost a year old. In fact, we will be um, uh, 364 days away from our first first preview when we close here at the Lyceum on the 24th of May. Uh, But by this time last year, we were already in rehearsals. At the time, the plan was to take the production to the um, Minerva Theatre, which is the small studio theatre in Chichester, not the great big grand festival theatre house where Laurence Olivier first created his national theatre company, which became the Royal National Theatre Company. We were in the small studio space. And the plan was that it would be a summer season production to go in tandem with Twelfth Night. The same eight, 18 actors in Twelfth Night. We were, there were no subtractions or additions. We just simply moved from one play to the other. But then Macbeth opened and uh, immediately caught people's attention. And before we knew it, there were trains coming down from London and limos coming down and people were paying a lot of attention to it and that was the start of what has been an astonishing journey particularly for many of our company who are young actors uh, and actresses uh, many of whom had never been to the United States before so a trip to Brooklyn was exciting (laughs) enough but then to find that we end up uh, 100 yards away from Broadway has been an unexpected and fantastic blessing. Well, when the show did transfer to Brooklyn, Brooklyn Academy of Music, was it intended to eventually go to uh, Broadway? Was that because it was sold out run? No, no, no. Um, There had been some conversation about taking this... We did well in Chichester. We went to Shaftesbury Avenue, and, and the critics were, if anything, even more enthusiastic. We were lucky enough to pick up some awards and nominations along the way. And uh, Brooklyn, back in the Chichester days, had said they, they wanted to have that production at the Harvey. But there was a Broadway producer who was also very interested. 
but of course we we were subject to the usual conditions that attach itself to English companies if you are not the Royal Shakespeare Company or the Royal National Theatre Company and that was that we would have had to replace perhaps 60 to 70% of our cast I wasn't prepared to do that nor was Rupert Gould this is an ensemble group and um, anyone who sees the production uh, will clearly see that it's the work of a company uh, I hope that after this success, the Chichester Festival Theatre might join the glittering ranks of the National and the RSC, perhaps uh, for a special um, dispensation to be made about transfers, because they are a company. It's, um, so we didn't, make, we didn't go the Broadway route. Um, Bam wanted us, and uh, that seemed to us to be distinction enough. But we arrived here with to find the production at Brooklyn already sold out. In fact, it, it's, uh, it has sold out simply everywhere. We've never, ever really had to go out and sell this show. The early weeks here at uh, the Lyceum, yeah, we worked hard to, to attract attention to it. Um, and, um, and our Broadway producer, Manny Eisenberg, came back to us and said, look, you're, you're sold out in Brooklyn. There are people who want to see this show. The reviews here in New York, again, have been terrific. Let's see what can be done. And uh, American Actors' Equity have really got to be thanked and praised for this because they said, well, given that you're sold out, Brooklyn cannot extend. A lot of people want to see your show. Let's see if we can make it work. So we are immensely grateful, not only to Brooklyn and to... Uh, Manny and to our other producers here in New York, but to Equity, who who made this possible, because they could have nipped it in the bud at the early stages. You've talked about the journey that this show took through four different venues. I'm wondering, especially coming out of the Minerva at Chichester, uh, did the show change? It, surprisingly little, even though the venues have been so different. The Minerva is a tiny studio theater, I think 240 seats. Um, you know, you would trip up over the audience's ankles when making entrances and exits. Then we went to a classic London Edwardian proscenium theatre, newly renovated by Cameron Mackintosh. So we were the first company in, and it was beautiful. But this was three tiers of seats and a large house. The, the production, we all technically the actors, we had to do a little bit more work. But it's it's a it's a very technically accomplished company, and nobody struggled. Curiously, within the proscenium arch, the play became even more focused, even more intense. True, it lost some of that claustrophobic, low-ceilinged atmosphere of the Minerva. But, but the way a proscenium arch, exactly as at the Lyceum, focuses the attention, we think gives it even more drop and intensity than it's had. Then we left the three-storied uh, uh, Edwardian Theatre and, and came to Brooklyn to the magnificent Harvey. Uh, when I first saw it, I got goosebumps. It was almost as though this theatre had been created to house this production. So, once again, we were spread wide open, uh, uh, acres of space to tell this story. With There's a lot of action, a lot of activity. Um, and we were, all of us, a little bit uncertain about this transfer because the Lyceum is much smaller than the, the novella where we played in London. Um, the stage is small. We have probably lost half of our depth on the set. So a journey from the famous elevator upstage, downstage, which could have taken 15 paces, now takes eight or nine. 
Yet again, the production has astonished us because it works so brilliantly, in, again, in a small proscenium theatre. Um, it, it, it looks fantastic on this stage, and yet again we found that the intensity of the production has been even more focused and, uh, and made, I think, more dramatic than it even was in Brooklyn. Can you just describe it a little bit for our radio audience because they, they can't see this set in, in, in what, what you're referring to? I'll try. To. Um, it is um, uh, about eight feet of dirty white tiling... Like, like subway tile. Like subway tile, yes. Or some people have likened it to an abandoned hospital, an abandoned abattoir, some of them have said. Um, or a kitchen, you know, underground kitchen. Um, there is a large, very old refrigerator stands against one wall. There's a big old television set that's on the top of the refrigerator. Um, there's what looks like a, some kind of industrial baking oven. And there are some gurneys that slip and slide on. But upstage center, there are two grills. And for the audience coming for the first time to this, it's difficult to determine what they are until Macbeth and, Mac and, Mac and Banquo make their first entrance. And we find that it's an industrial elevator, which is used throughout the production very effectively. And I'm told by some of the audience quite unnervingly at times. Characters make their exits and entrances through this elevator. There is also downstage right, right a, a piece of furniture which has also become notorious, which is a sink. And um, things get washed in there, not just hands, but <laughs> body parts. And, <laughs> and it's also used as a toilet at one point by the porter. Mm -hmm. uh, it, that, that, you wouldn't get, want to get too close to that sink by the intermission, <laughs> I can promise you. The, the different bodily fluids that end up in there. <laughs> I read that you had begun memorizing Macbeth's great speeches when you were a teenager. Mm -hmm. Having lived knowing those speeches for so many years, what was it like to finally plunge in and really work on them and to play them? It was, it was frightening and thrilling and unbelievable. It's true. I, I was... 13 or 14 when I learnt all of these soliloquies. I fell in love with Shakespeare at the age of 11 or 12. Um, I can't explain why. Uh, I was a child of the radio. I didn't own a television until I was 26. And um, so I listened to everything on the radio and good old um, uh, BBC Home Service and the third programme. They did a lot of drama and a lot of Shakespeare. The first Shakespeare I ever heard was John Gielgud in The Tempest on the radio. The, the, the curate of my local church, I was a choir boy then, he had given me a complete work, so somehow he, something must have been picked up by him. I had these complete works when I was 11, so I followed along, you know. I, I would turn the pages and, as, and listening to the drama on the radio. Macbeth was one of the plays that I listened to, um, and I, I, much of it I didn't understand. I was, I'm not well educated. I left school when I was 15. I didn't drop out. I just finished. That was my schooling over. But the language was so vivid and, and musical to me and transported me into a, an imaginary world. I was a sort of bit of a dreamer as a kid. And so I set about learning these things and I would walk the fields near to my home and I would yell these speeches to the country air and uh, it felt good. So this time coming around, the, the blessing was because Learning Minds has now become the only real nightmare of this job that I love more and more with every year. Learning Minds, as soon as they can invent some little chip you can just stick in the back of your head, 
the, the happier I will be. Um, for years now, particularly with classical theater, particularly with Shakespeare, my primary objective has been clarity, understanding, um, that, that an audience never has to say, what's going on? I don't understand. Um, I want them to understand in terms of the narrative, the plot of the play. I want them to understand literally what the characters are saying. But I want them to understand what's happening with the character. Why is he saying this? Why is he behaving like this? What lies behind his actions? And that's what drives my preparation and rehearsal process. Um, and that's what happened with these soliloquies. Uh, they, they, and by the way, as we were speaking about the theatres earlier, the very first thing that I discovered when I walked onto a proscenium art to do this play was that the soliloquies worked like, you know, gangbusters. They, they're just made for that kind of stage mm. where the audience is out there and you stand and, and you talk to them directly. You have a dialogue with the audience. It's just that there's only one of you that hopefully speaking. <laughs> um, so, I look at, at these things. If it were done when tis done, then twere well it were done quickly. Uh, tomorrow and tomorrow and tomorrow is this a dagger which I see before me. And I try to root them in the life and world of the character that I'm playing, but more than anything else in, in a, a simple logic and a simple emotional logic too so that the audience can see what's going on. Let's let's talk about your Macbeth and your Lady Macbeth, played by Kate Fleetwood, uh, who is stunning both visually and as an actress, and just really is so convincing. I'm, I'm rolling Lady my Macbeth. eyes actually. Yeah. Your audience couldn't <laughs> see that, but she is stunning in every way. Uh, there's been much written about the difference in ages. You're about twice her age. Is that an advantage? Does that make for a different chemistry between you and Lady Macbeth? I'm more than twice Kate's age. The only thing, the only offering I brought to this production was this one idea. And as I saw the years going by and the possibility of playing this role, uh, as casts became younger and younger and younger, um, I, I saw an opportunity to do something perhaps um, unusual, but also something that would help to justify the extraordinary nature of this relationship, this husband and wife. And that was to have a Lady Macbeth who was significantly and obviously so much younger than Macbeth and to have someone as, tr as attractive and sexy and desirable as possible. Kate has been called the trophy bride, mm -hmm. Lady Macbeth, in this production. Um, that's the only idea I brought, and I'm happy to say that Rupert Gould, our director, uh, I... He, he, he saw the advantages in this, particularly when we talked through how to justify the extraordinary control, power, manipulative power that she has over this very successful general in the first two acts of the play. Um, we deliberately set out to make it an overtly sexual relationship, one in which the sexual chemistry was constant and intense. And to, uh, to that end... Poor Kate has to put up with being manhandled by me in all kinds of ways that probably she would rather not. But it, it sets the, the tone for the relationship and I think gives clarity uh, to, to uh, what happens between them in those early scenes. She scares me on stage. I, I, one, once or twice I've been with... Jonathan Price is another actor who frightens me <laughs> on stage. Uh, but Kate does. Um, uh, I don't have to put myself into any state when she turns to me and says when 
when you durst do it, then you were a man. And it, it feels horrible. And, um, <laughs> uh, and yet she is a great friend and, and colleague, and we, we have a lot of fun, and we have a lot of laughs and giggles, which is really important when you're doing a play like Macbeth eight times a week. You've got to have some fun, and the whole, the whole company do. We, we're, we're full of uh, jokes and gags and teasings and so forth, which just helps to lighten the atmosphere of what... Someone came last night to see it and said, my word, I always knew this was a dark play, but I had no idea it was as dark as this production makes it. We talked about the change in venues. I'm wondering whether the change from predominantly English audiences to predominantly American audiences has had any impact. Look, I, I first came to the United States with Shakespeare in 1968. The RSC were brought to um, the Amundsen Theatre at the Music Center in Los Angeles by Gordon Davidson to do two productions, uh, one of which just happened to be Trevor Nunn's first ever Shakespeare production, The Taming of the Shrew. Um, we arrived here with The Taming of the Shrew and As You Like. We arrived in... in in Los Angeles, and at our first preview, uh, actors were coming off stage, gasping and looking at one another in amazement. Uh, and and the clock was ticking by, and our shows are running longer and longer. Why? Because, as we said, uh, and, and has been proved over the years, American audiences, and this particularly applies to New York audiences, they show you what is witty, amusing, ironic comic, funny, bizarre about plays. They really let you know. So those productions of Taming of the Shrew and As You Like It, you know, they put on 10, 12 minutes running time in America because the, the, the audiences not only got the humor but responded to it, and that's what I've experienced. You know, we find, and luckily Rupert Gould, our director, he's, he's, he approves of all the humor in the play, but it's uh, another thing aspect of this production, people are saying, we didn't know Macbeth was so funny. Th there, there are, um, I think, th there are some bizarre things in the play, and we don't avoid them, and the American audiences see them as ironic. There is a moment after we have murdered Duncan, and his body has been discovered, and, and everything is really bad, when Lady Macduff is describing how, how, how awful the weather has been. There's been storm and lightning and tempest, roofs have been blown, and Macbeth says, "'Twas a rough night.'" And it, it, it stops the show um, in the best possible way because we're not, we're not throwing the play away by, by deliberately underlining the irony. We are emphasizing the, the blackness and darkness of the play. So that's the primary difference. And you know what? American audiences, especially New York audiences, they come to the theater to have a good time. They come to enjoy themselves. Um, and perhaps that's the one thing that might be the difference between the somewhat more reserved, conservative British audiences. Here, they're, they're up for a great night in the theater, and if they're having one, they'll let you know it. We should go back to your beginnings. You mentioned walking through the fields and reciting Shakespeare. Your, your father was a military man. He was, uh, that was his career. There have been two strong men in your life, one your father, the other Jean-Luc Picard. What influence uh, have those two men had on you as an actor? And then we'll talk about your, your early years. The influences are interconnected because I could not have played Jean-Luc Picard unless, uh, unless uh, I'd known Alfred Stewart, my your father. father. Um, and 
he, he was um, he'd been a regular soldier and uh, he enlisted uh, the outbreak of war in 1939 I I must have been one of those babies conceived you know on his farewell evening um, and uh, he was a tough man uh, he ended his military career as regimental sergeant major of the parachute regiment I a superstar there's only one of them and that's the top of the pinnacle of non-commissioned officers. Um, and he was a man of great discipline and character. He was also a great raconteur. Had a, of course, as a sergeant major, had a stupendous voice and a great presence. Uh, somebody who served under him after he had died said to me once, when your father walked on the parade ground, the birds in the trees stopped singing. <laughs> and that was the impact that he had. Well, on a small kid, you know, that was intense. Uh, he also later in his life became a pretty unhappy man too frustrated you know he had a military service in which he was this star figure deeply satisfied with everything there, and he came back to ordinary laboring jobs you know um, so he's I finally had to acknowledge that he's in almost everything that I do but last night um, I was doing one of my quick changes in the room standing in front of the mirror with, with Zender my dresser and I stopped for a moment. She asked, what's wrong? And I said, I'm sorry. It's just my father is looking right back at me. And it was such an emotional moment. He had a moustache, too. Mm -hmm. And I, I look exactly like him as he looked when he came out of the war. And um, it, it at times really unnerves me. But I'm also proud, too, because he was a, a good-looking guy. And you know, if I also inherited a bit of that, <laughs> it feels good. Um, Jean-Luc Picard... Um, yeah, my father, he never lived to see me do Star Trek. I wish he had, because I was the only one of his sons that didn't do military service. And I think he always thought that I would probably end up no good because of that. So it would have been, I think, amusing for him, especially here in New York. You know, I, if I don't have my cap on, I walk the streets. and I will hear all the time, Hey, Captain, how you doing? <laughs> they call me Captain, and Dad would have liked that a great deal. <laughs> Although I don't think he ever thought I was really officer material. Uh, and his, his presence and thoughtfulness, his um, devotion to his job, his dedication to the men who served with and under him. These were all elements that went into Jean-Luc Picard. Your father stopped the birds from singing on the parade ground and you were shouting Shakespeare in the fields. When did you move indoors and, and tell us a little about your training and, and how you began your professional career? It, it all comes down to falling into the right hands. Um, I had an English teacher, and, and you know, I think if you put almost any English classical actor in this chair, you will find lurking somewhere in the background an English teacher. Not a drama teacher, not an acting coach, but somebody who first said, read this, read it out loud. No, this is real life. This isn't a narrative poem. Act it. Feel it. Believe in it. And I had such a man, still alive, I'm happy to say, Cecil Dormand, I think now 89, and... Um, he was the first man to get me standing up acting, and uh, one of the things he had me do was read uh, Shylock in The Merchant of Venice. He was the first man to put me in a play, a play with adults. The, the part of England I, co I come from, um, the West Riding of Yorkshire, it was, not thought un it was not uncommon or thought to be eccentric or odd or show-off to be any kind of performer. People sang, recited, danced, played. We have, I was in a choir. There were 
string quartets, orchestras, brass bands, of course. My part of the world is famous for its brass bands. And so very early on, uh, you know, at family gatherings and parties, people would do something. Um, I remember I had an aunt who every Christmas recited the same interminable dialect poem. Um, And I found myself pretty early on reciting Shakespeare. And nobody laughed. Nobody said, shut up, sit down, you know, let's have, you know, a sing-a-song or something. They, they listened to me. Um, so Cecil Dorman was the first great influence. And he got me on a, a drama course run by the local authority, West Riding County Council. I don't think these things could happen today. I don't think there's the funding for it. These were residential courses for amateur actors in the, in the catchment area of the West Riding. And they brought in professional teachers. And so for eight days, we worked intensively, 12, 14 hours a day, with professionals. And at the end of the eight days, we put on a public performance. Well, I also, by the way, discovered a few years ago that Cecil Dorman paid for me to go on that course, too, because my parents had no money. Mm. Um, I should have known that. I should have suspected that years ago. But, you know, you don't think about those things when you're 12 year olds. He also lied about my age. He told them I was 14, which was the minimum age, and I was 12. So these influences started then. And on this course, I met a woman called Ruth Winnowin, a retired actress. She had worked with the Old Vic Company. She had been Dame Peggy Ashcroft's principal understudy for years. So not only had she learned and played some of the great roles, Portia, Desdemona, but she had watched Dame Peg play them at close quarters. She'd, she'd been on stage with John Mills, John Gilgood. She'd been on stage with Ralph Richardson. She'd been on stage with, with Wolfitt. And so she became my my teacher. And at weekends, I used to take three buses on a Sunday morning and go to her house in South Yorkshire, and we would work with others, other actors. You may have heard of the actor Brian Blessed. Well, Brian was one of those that went to her house, too. He was two years older than me, and and we just acted Shakespeare. Nothing else, actually. Just Shakespeare. And um, I did that for five years until I got a place in drama school. And the Bristol Old Vic, yeah. though not a name that may be well known over here, was a very prestigious drama school oh, yes. at that time with extraordinary people coming out of it. Yeah, extraordinary. Who were your classmates at the time? Well, the, the one classmate who may be a name to you now was um, a, a, an actor, now director, called Robin Phillips. Oh, sure. Well, Robin and I were the two youngest people in the year. And um, he was infinitely more talented and certainly more confident than I was. Um, And he's had a terrific career. In the year ahead of me was Brian Blessed, who also went to Bristol Old Vic. Um, And Brian Murray uh, came shortly after me, um, an actor very well known in New York. And I had, it was two-year training. Two years is nothing now, of course. People do three, four eight if they do a master's degree. It was two years of intense training, and when it was over, um, after a brief period of terrifying unemployment, thinking my career was over before it had started, I was given a job as an acting assistant stage manager uh, in Weekly Rep in Lincoln. And and, um, I never, from the moment I accepted that ASM's job, I was not out of work again for, I think, 14 years. Hmm. That was largely because I chose to stay with companies. I loved the idea, and I still do, of being with a group of actors week in, week out, month in month, play after play after play after play. That's what attracted me to um, to the repertory movement in England, which no longer exists in that form now, of course. And um, I was able to 
go from weekly rep in Lincoln to two weekly in Sheffield to three weekly in Liverpool and Manchester and finally back to Bristol to the old Vic Theatre um, to do monthly. But when I was a student at Bristol, the, the, the star-leading young actor in the Bristol Old Vic Company was a man unknown outside Bristol whose name was Peter O'Toole. So from those early company years in, looks like, in about 1966, you were taken in by the Royal Shakespeare Company. All I'd ever wanted to do from the moment I left drama school was to work for the, for the well, they weren't the RSC then, they were still the Stratford Memorial Theatre Company. Um, then Peter Hall created the RSC in, I think, 63. I saw some of their work. I saw that great David Warner Hamlet. Mm. I'd never seen anything like it in my life. I saw the Peterbrook Lear with Paul Schofield, and it's the only place I wanted to be. And finally they auditioned me, and I was invited into the company to play very small roles and to understudy. Um, and I got to understudy the great Paul Rogers as Falstaff. And um, the end of that first year, Peter offered me a three-year contract, which became another three-year contract and another three-year contract. And... There was nowhere else I wanted to be. I was now getting paid to do what all my life I'd have been happy doing just as an amateur actor. As part of being in the Royal Shakespeare Company, obviously we cannot go through every show you did. You had the opportunity over time to be in the same plays in different roles at different times in your career. And I just want to ask you about a few of them, and you can mm -hmm. free associate, but uh, Shylock, Merchant of Venice. Uh a very important role to me. I played it at Bristol when I was 23, allegedly one of the youngest Shylocks uh, at that time. Um, uh, and then I went on to play it with John Barton in his production at the other place in Stratford and uh, and the warehouse in London, now the Donmar. Um, I had a strong connection with that role. Of course, it was the role that I'd read in my classroom when I was 12 years old. Um, so I had a history with this role already. Um, my history with it actually isn't over because... I, I'm hoping that in a little over a year's time uh, we will be rolling cameras on a, a f new film mm -hmm. of The Merchant of Venice which has been in development for a number of years now and we are now pushing forward with this. Um, it's, a, it's a modern version, but it's all Shakespeare, great adaptation by John Logan um, of Shakespeare's play. So my, my association with Shylock is not yet done. This production is actually set in Las Vegas. Huh. Have another Shakespearean production of Midsummer Night's Dream. You've done that multiple times as well. I have done that an awful lot, yes. Um, I played Oberon twice. I understudied Oberon Theseus in the great Peter, Peter Brook Midsummer Night's Dream and went on several times. Scary with all that <laughs> juggling and spinning plates and acrobatics and so forth. Um, but what a wonderful experience that was. I played Snout. That was my Broadway debut in that production. Um... And I did another production of it with uh, with John Barton, because after Peter Brook had done it, it might be the same with this Macbeth. Nobody wanted to touch Midsummer Night's Dream oh. for years. But then John did a wonderful production of it. And um, I, uh, I, I, I now have kind of set my sight on bottom, actually. I don't think I'm too old for it. I, I keep telling people, you know, I'm a comic actor, or, you know, all these years, and people never really quite appreciated that. Huh. Um, and just... As Lawrence Olivier once said, the greatest satisfaction in the theatre is making people laugh, not making them cry. Mm. Um, and so Bottom is one of those roles I've got heavily penciled in for the future. Mm. You played Anthony and Cleopatra 
multiple times. Oh, well, I played uh, Ina Barbas twice. Once for Trevor Nunn in his great uh-huh. Roman season, and once for Peter Brook uh-huh. with Glenda Jackson and Alan Howard. Um, only two years apart, those productions. And then... Um, so, as Ina Barbas, you know, you get to stand downstage left and downstage right a great deal because <laughs> Ina Barbas is the observer, the commentator on the action. So I, wore, I, I said to them, I wore little grooves in the Stratford Memorial Theatre um, from watching first Richard Johnson and then Alan Howard, both wonderful Mark Antonys, play the role. And then um, three years ago, when the RSC got interested in taking me back, this was the first role to be offered, and I thought, wouldn't it be nice to stand center stage for a change instead of down there in the corners? Uh-huh. And um, I hope, I don't think I'm giving anything away here, I hope we will be back in New York with that production within 18 months. Um, the plan was to come back very early next year, but my Cleopatra, the fantastic Harriet Walter, uh, was not available because she's coming here with um, the Schiller Mary Stewart which she's wonderful in, and it's a great production. So I'm going to wait for her. I didn't want to do it with anybody else. So with a bit of luck, um, we shall be back in the New York area with Anthony and Cleopatra in about 18 months. One more on this list, Titus Andronicus. Yeah, not many actors get to do it once, and I've done it twice, um, I- including what has now become an infamous <laughs> evening in the theater, John Barton's famous double bill. Uh, John directed a double bill of Titus Andronicus and Two Gentlemen of Verona. Both plays performed in the same evening with an interval between them. Well, Titus is a long and huge play. It was heavily cut, as was The the Two Gentlemen of Verona. Um, But it, it, um, well, it was a pretty bizarre evening and was not thought to be successful. Although now I'm told by people it's become a kind of collector's item. You know, a bit like Carrie. You know, you actually saw it. <laughs> <laughs> um, actually, I saw Carrie. I saw it at preview, and I loved Carrie. Um, uh, but I'd played, um, I'd I'd played Aaron um, in in Titus the first time around, um, and got to watch. You know, it's 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 tough for a lot of young actors because it's often it's just watching. Just having the opportunity to see great actors night after night after night doing their stuff, working out how... I mean, for me, understudying Paul Rogers was a grand... Because I had to watch him, because it's a huge role. To watch so closely a great actor performing night after night and how he keeps it fresh and spontaneous and immediate. Well, in this case, I was able to watch the, the great and too early gone Colin Blakely play uh-huh. Titus Andronicus. Um... So that yeah, that that play has cropped up more times than you would expect in my career. I think perhaps I may be done with it. <laughs> We're talking about uh, Shakespearean roles that you've done once or, or more times. One that, that surprises me that you've not done is Hamlet. How did you miss that over the last fifty years? You mean you, Gloomy you've, Dane? You've, yeah, you've, <laughs> yeah, you've never you've never never done Hamlet. I was never a Hamlet. No, I was never a juvenile. You see, uh, I was a character actor when I was seventeen. Yeah. I lost my hair when I was 19. You know, how many bald Hamlets have you seen? <laughs> um, no, I, I... And, I, you know, I shouldn't have played it either. I would have been, I would have been awful. I'm, I could do it now. I, I'm perfectly serious. I, oh, yes, I could tear that passion to tatters. Uh, I had to do it at a... <clears throat> at a, a, a re, Judy Dench and I did an evening of stuff, and... Uh, 
I just got thrown at me to be or not to be. That was that landed at my feet instead of Dame Judy's. And uh, oh my, what a thrill to be able to uh, get inside that role for a while. But I played Claudius on no, my first season with the RSC. I played the player king, and uh, and the first player in the David Warner, the great David Warner Hamlet. So then I could watch him and Brewster Mason and Elizabeth Spriggs and Tony Church, Polonius of my generation, who just died a few weeks ago. And um, then I did it on television in the in the um, Cedric Messina Complete Works series, played Claudius, um, perhaps too young, and I'm going to do it. That's the next thing up. I'm going back to Stratford six days after we finish on Broadway to start rehearsing Hamlet with this amazing young actor, David Tennant, who is playing Hamlet. And um, I finally get to play Claudius, and I've talked the director into letting me do his brother. So I get to play the ghost, old Hamlet, and Claudius huh. as well, which I, I've... It, it's always been my hope that that's what I could do if ever I played Claudius, that I could double the two roles, because I think there's something interesting and unusual to be done with the same actor playing those roles. And, um, you know, it also keeps me on stage more than I otherwise would have done. <laughs> well, switching from Shakespeare to Dickens and Broadway, A Christmas Carol, that was a show that you've done multiple times now, a, a one-person show playing more than 40 characters, which you staged and which you were, were the star of. How did you come to doing that? I, I will try and keep this story as short as possible, because it is rather a lengthy story, but I... I um, I was invited by my church, where I'd been a choir boy, to do something for the, literally for the organ restoration fund. It was a big old northern Gothic Victorian church. I didn't know what to do, except that I remembered one day while I was filming, I'd plucked a book out of a, I was on standby on a rainy day, little thin volume out, Christmas Carol, oh, I know this, I thought, I almost put it back. But instead I started turning the pages. Marley was dead to begin with. And I realized, well, I haven't actually read this. I just think I've read it. And... That morning, I read the whole book and was deeply moved by it, unexpectedly moved. And um, so when they asked me to do this, I thought, oh, okay, I'll, I'll do a quick edit version of Christmas Count. I'll read that, which I did. Um, I didn't cut enough, and that poor congregation sat for three hours <laughs> while I read a too-long version of Christmas. But nobody moved. Nobody left. They sat in a big old underheated Victorian church on pews, and nobody left. And this impressed me, the power of this story to, to grip people, hold people. So we jump forward. To, I've gone to Hollywood. I'm doing this science fiction syndicated television series. Everybody told me, Star Trek, The Next Generation, everybody told me it would be a failure. We would probably not survive the first season. It turns out everybody was wrong. We're a smash hit. And now I'm facing the, the reality of a six-year contract, which I never expected to have to fulfill. And I'm in a panic because what about my theatre career? You can't have a theatre career when you're shooting 26 episodes a, a year. So um, at the start of the second season, living above a garage in Hancock Park, I set about creating some solo shows, <clears throat> one-man shows. I did six or seven of them, the idea being that I could... The, the only condition was I could pack the whole show up, put it in the trunk of my car, drive it off to a college or a community centre or somewhere at weekends... While, because we shot Star Trek Monday to Friday, and get on stage again, and there's nothing like being on stage on your own to, you know, to have a real workout. And one of them was Christmas Carol, and that's the one that 
thanks to my dear friend, first of all, stage manager, now producing partner, Kate Elliott, that it took off. She, she came and she hawked it around Broadway and Tim and Terry Childs, virgin producers, against everybody's advice, spent the money and brought me to New York. And uh, you know, five, I think five times we've been here with it. Your next uh, New York production was The Tempest, at, uh, first at the Delacorte and then on Broadway. What was it like doing Shakespeare with an American company? It was fabulous. First of all, let me say what it was like doing Shakespeare with George C. Wolfe. That was amazing. George had never directed Shakespeare before, so everything to him was absolutely huh. new. Absolutely. That's what he claimed. I mean, you're looking at me quizzically. But well, it just, as you say it, I think, well, maybe that, that is true, but you didn't think about it. So a completely free and fresh and spontaneous attitude to it all, you know. Um, entirely American company. I, in fact, um, uh, I adopted American intonation and American speech patterns because I didn't want to stand out as some, you know, boring old Brit. And um, it was a dazzling production. Um, <laughs> kind of... Caribbean, Cuban-style production. And um, we, were, we were successful in the park, and we were, I think at that time, the only Shakespeare ever to transfer to Broadway from the park. And we went into the Broadhurst for a four-month season. Wonderful experience. And that is a show that you had done before, The Tempest. You'd been in other productions of that. I think, actually, that's got more ticks opposite it than any other play I've been really? in. Yeah, I've th- I played Prospero five times now, hmm. twice in the United States, uh, once here in New York, well, twice if you count the Delacorte and Broadway as being two different venues. Um, once um, with a group of students at um, uh, uh, um, in Ohio at the um, the Great Music Conservatory in Ohio, uh, Oberlin. I did a production of it there. I mean, I was in a production of it there. Um, I played it when I was fifteen. Um, at one, one of these Prospero drama courses. Prospero, yeah. <laughs> um, I played Stefano with the RSC, and that's a great role. Um, and I played Caliban on the radio. Now think about it. That's a bit of a handicap because Caliban is a very visual character. I played him on the radio, but I played him on the radio with Paul Schofield as Prospero. That's not bad. So that was good fortune. And then um, I felt Prospero, I'd never really had a shot at Prospero in England, so when they invited me to do Antony and Cleopatra three years ago, I said, well, please, can I do The Tempest as well? Well, they'd already got somebody signed up for it, but he fell out, and the producer fell out too, and they said, can we introduce you to this chap, Rupert Gould, who's been making a bit of a stir in Northampton, and we met, and I liked him, and he did this astonishing production of The Tempest, which led on to us doing the Macbeth together. Prospero seems a role you could keep playing and playing. And I'm done with it. Really? Yeah, I've, I've said my goodbye to that role. Why? Why do you say goodbye to a role? Um, I think there's nothing more I can bring to it. I think I've exhausted all my possibilities, and so you're better off leaving it to somebody else now. Um, I, I have spent years in that play, and um, I think Rupert's production of it was so unusual and effective and um, we certainly found a way also of of Prospero saying goodbye to his island saying goodbye to his magic saying goodbye to his daughter um, which resonated for me in such a way that I thought that it was also my farewell to the role too hmm. 
a couple of uh, productions in this country that are not Shakespearean productions, one that started at the Public Theater here in New York in 1998, The Ride Down Mount Morgan, which then in 2000 ran on Broadway, and then a year after that, The Guthrie in Minneapolis, Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf? Uh, you're, you're shaking your head in, like... Well, you know, to get fond, to work... Fond memories, I presume. Two contemporary American playwrights, and at the time, uh, arguably the two greatest American playwrights, arguably the two greatest playwrights in the English language, and uh, not only to do their plays, but to have them around as well, mm. to talk to, especially Arthur, when we were doing Ride Down Mount Morgan. Arthur so, Miller. Arthur, I'm sorry, Arthur, Arthur Miller. Miller. So accessible and present um, and helpful and... Um, supportive um, and and uh, Edward too uh, I had done Virginia Woolf immediately before going to Hollywood I did it at the Young Vic in London with Billy Whitelaw and it was at that time without question the grandest experience of my life and we were supposed to be transferring it to the West End it had it had cleaned up in all the um, the, the fringe awards that year and um Billy didn't want to go. She didn't. She'd had, she'd, she didn't want to move on with the production. And we were recasting Martha when I got this call, final call, to go back to Paramount and audition for Star Trek: The Next Generation. And the day before I got on the plane, we had a meeting with the producers about replacing Billy. And um, I remember the producer looking around the table at me, Matthew Marsh, and Saskia Reeves, who are now very significant heavyweight actors on the London stage. In 1987, not so much. And this producer looked at the three of us and said, I don't care who you cast as Martha, but we've got to have one person in this play that people have heard of. Mm-hmm. Ouch, I thought, because I'd been acting for 27 years then. And that, you know, that was it. That, cause, but he was right. I wasn't, a com- you know, I wasn't known as a commercial actor at all. So I did it there at the Young Vic, and then I did it at the Guthrie, and what a treat that was to work in that theatre. Gone now. It's one of the architectural crimes that this country is going to have to pay for at some point, mm-hmm. that they should pull down. The, I mean, this is where that kind of stage, in a contemporary sense, began. Mm-hmm. Chichester, the Olivier, the, the, the Crucible, Sheffield, all began with the Guthrie in Minneapolis. So I got to work on that stage while it was still there, and it was a, a fantastic experience. And your Martha at Minneapolis was Mercedes was Rule. Mercedes Rule. <laughs> she ma- it makes me shiver now just thinking how, how powerful and impressive she was in that production. Mm-hmm. You, you talked about having uh, Arthur Miller and Edward Albee around to work with, to be able to talk with them. Mm. What sort of uh, input were you looking for from them, or, or were you? Um, in... in in Edward's case, actually, usually my questions were, what's going on here? I don't un- understand uh-huh. this. Um, uh, what exactly is, you know... And, and, uh, Did Edward know, tell you? Yeah. <laughs> you know, he sometimes says his plays are very clear. They don't need to be explained. Yes, he does. And, 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 some, and sometimes the inference was, you find out for yourself. Um, my experience of... And I've, I worked with Harold Pinter. I've worked with Tom Stoppard. I've worked with Edward Bond. Uh, I've had worked with Howard Barker. The, the better the playwright, actually, the more accessible they are to, you know, if they trust you to talking about the work. And and certainly that was the case with with Arthur. And, you, you know, there were, oh, my, there was one day when the director, David S. Bjornsson, and I finally agreed this scene isn't working. It's, it's not working so much. We, we should cut it. How do you go to <laughs> Arthur Miller and say, we'd like to cut part of your play, please? <laughs> well, <laughs> we took him across the street to the Time Cafe in Astor Place, and we, we all sat down with coffee, and the, we looked at one another, and 
I said, you're the director. Come on, you start this. And he did. And Arthur's face got grimmer and grimmer. <laughs> and, um, and David explained vividly why he thought the scene wasn't working, why he thought it, perhaps it should go. And I supported it with my talk about the character Lyman felt that I was playing. And Arthur said, let me think about it. And uh, what we didn't know was that in a previous production, the play had been done out, outside Broadway. We were the first New York production. The scene had also been cut in that production yeah. as well. And Arthur was trying to hang on to it. He came in the next morning and rather grumpily. He dumped some pages down and he said, it's gone. Mm. <laughs> um, you know, that's it. It's gone. He thought about it and... Uh, there was a character in this scene whose name was Raoul. He didn't appear anywhere else in the play. And after he tossed these pages down, I heard, and David and I heard Arthur mutter, poor Raoul, <laughs> <laughs> who had left the play. Um, so, yeah, uh, and hopefully to work again with Edward. I'd like to think that will happen. Um, to have those opportunities are, uh, are uh, highlights in a what has been, well, by next August will be a 50-year career. Hmm. When we next saw you in New York, it was in a pinter play, The Caretaker. I'm just wondering, as I looked over your the res, as much of a resume as we got, um, I did not see pinter elsewhere. Had you done pinter before? Oh, yes. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah, something that uh, amused him. Actually, uh, it also amused Arthur to know that I played the lawyer in uh, Death of a Salesman. Not the lawyer, uh, uh, Willie Loman's boss. There's one scene with a tape recorder mm -hmm. in Death of a Salesman. And it amused Arthur in enormously to know that I, as a 19-year-old rap actor, had actually played that part once upon a time. I told him about how I also how our Willie Loman wore what was called the acting suit. Actors in rap had to provide their own clothing, modern clothing. They, they wouldn't... There was no wardrobe. There, there was no budget. So... It, you, the actor was expected to have a wardrobe, a range of clothes to wear. Well, one actor had a, a sort of mid-gray suit. And whenever we were doing anything that was dramatic and contemporary, he would loan the suit out to the actor, so it became known as the acting suit. And Arthur was amused <laughs> by the idea that Willie Loman fell into that category of an actor who wears the acting suit. Um, what were we talking well, about? Well, I'd asked about Pinter, and you Pinter, said you had right. done other Pinter. I, I did a production of The Birthday Party. I played Goldberg in The Birthday Party when I was 22. Madness. Um, I played Aston in The Caretaker when I was probably one year older. And, um, you know, these plays... I was... Harold's first play um, uh, was first performed in the Victoria Rooms, Bristol, when I was a student at, at the school. I didn't see it. <laughs> because you know, it was a play by some guy called Harold Pinter. Um, and so I miss being there you know, at the very, very beginning. But my early acting career w was simultaneous with, with Harold's great works being written and performed. So um, when finally I was asked to do it here in New York... And uh, and I had an opportunity to meet with him and sit down and, and talk about it and, again, ask those questions. I don't know what's going on. Please help here. Um, again, uh, open and easy and, and uh, responsive. Um, uh, and I'd, I'd like to do it again. I've, I've, 
I've already sort of thrown my hat into the ring. Uh, the great Gambon did it quite recently in England, um, and so he's kind of made it his own for a while. But the nice thing with roles like Davis in The Caretaker is that essentially you never really become too old for them. You know, So I'd like to think I might have another crack at that. Now, it's interesting because you've talked about roles you want to go back to and roles that you think you're done with. What are the aspects of a role you, you think you want to do again? Is it is it because you don't think you've nailed it or just because mm-hmm. you enjoy it so much? Yeah, um, because I, uh, for instance, Anthony, I know Anthony is unfinished business. There, there is more to be wrung out of, of that extraordinary character in Anthony and Cleopatra. I, I didn't get it all out. Sometimes it's just a matter of time, you know. We did Anthony and Cleopatra for a year, and I think I need to spend more time with it. In, uh, I, I love music, but I don't, I'm not musical. I don't play, but I listen to a lot of music, and I, I love being in the company of musicians. And, and it's always great for me. If I'm, if I'm talking to a, a great conductor or, or to a performer, a singer, to hear them talk about how in their careers it has been returning to pieces again and again and finding that they continue to open up and with masterworks they do I know I said I'm done with The Tempest but you know five times is it because uh, uh, that's not just one performance that's five years of work um, you you feel that, that there is this like a smell in your nostrils there's something more here and maybe if I just put it aside for a couple of years and then return to it that smell might take a shape and form and and I'll know what it is I want to pursue next. I know with Claudius, I know absolutely clearly where I have to go with Claudius and I have a pretty good idea, I think, about Old Hamlet, about the ghost too. Though I have no idea what Greg Doran, our director, is planning to do with the production, so I don't know if it's going to be contemporary or period or or what. Um, But I know where the next steps with Claudius have to be taken very, very clearly. You spoke earlier about the fact that the Virginia Wolf in England did not come to the West End because no one was well known. Well, that was pre-Star Trek. Certainly we are in a post-Star Trek, the next generation <laughs> world, a post-X-Men world. Do you now have the opportunity to create projects and initiate projects and are there particular things you specifically would still like to do mm-hmm. I, I I think that's true I am um, yeah I mean uh, people will put me in plays now um, so long as they're not absolutely stupid and you know, worthless things uh, but there are so many good things to be done when it comes to Shakespeare I've got a list of roles I have not played or that I I want to go back to, I want to look at again. So, And I love working with the Royal Shakespeare Company, and I have a home not far from Stratford. Um, I want to go back to Chichester and do more work with them. I hope one day the Royal National Theatre might even call me. I've only worked there once in, in the history of the National oh. Theatre. Um, and that was in a great Peter Schaffer play called Yonadab, which is hardly known. Here not seen over here. Not no. seen at all. And, you know, uh, Peter and I worked on that here in New York for two years. Um, and then things happened and it didn't come off. And I'm now, I think, um, absolutely too old to play Yonadab in that play. But I, I would have liked to have done it. Um, yeah, I, I mean, there are the great ones. I, uh, I, I, I want to hope I'll play Leah sometime. Um, uh, but for me, the great, great challenge waiting is still Falstaff. Mm-hmm. I have never forgotten what Paul Rogers did, and uh, he, he for me, would be a great launch pad. But it would be on condition that I do both plays. You can't 
you can't do just part one or part two. You, you, to tell that man's story properly, you have to tell the whole plays. And I think I've always looked on Falstaff as being the middle-aged actor's Hamlet. It has that level of complexity and richness. I got to play Malvolio this year. Now I'm not a you know everybody's idea of a Malvolio, but it was okay, and I got a great deal of pleasure out of hearing people laugh. Um, I've already said I, I want to have a crack at, at bottom. I'd like to play Sir Toby Belch. I saw Paul Shelley do it in our production this summer and thought, whoa, that's a good role, Toby yeah. Belch. Um, I'd like to play Festy, too, because I sing a little. And um, and there are some other... I would like to play the fool in Lear, actually, if it comes down to it. Um, there are some unexpected roles that I haven't played. Don Armado, for instance, in Love's Labour's Lost is another terrific role, supporting role. Um... I would love, because it was the, the last conversation I ever had with Arthur Miller, was outside a restaurant where we'd had lunch, and um, his car was there waiting, and I said, look, Arthur, ride down Mount Morgan, because it, it, it had its world premiere in London, but it didn't really work, for I don't know, for a variety of reasons. I said, I would love to see this play, given our production in London, at some point when it's thought appropriate, would you like to see that happen? And he said, absolutely. Absolutely. And I said, thank you. Then I'll, I can move ahead with that. He said, yes, yes. So that was the last conversation we ever had. So I partly feel, yeah, I need to do this because Arthur said he wanted it to happen. So I'd love to do Ride Down Mount Morgan again. Again, I'm borderline too old. This damned thing of age becomes... <laughs> if only, you know, there was some way of just, you know, instant collagen or, you know, or, uh, you know, plastic surgery that you could then undo afterwards. Or the um, holodeck. <laughs> or the, well, we could, I could do anything on the holodeck. So, so there's that. Um, there are a couple of new plays you wouldn't know of that I've been sitting on for two or three years I, I want to do. Um, of course, finding the great brand new play is the thing that all actors want, of course. You know, we all want to f find the next Amadeus or Angels in America or, you know, The Caretaker. Um, mm -hmm. but, or, or, you know, um, anything by Tom Stoppard, if it fell in my direction, mm -hmm. my word. I've done one play of his. I did a world premiere of a, of a play called Every Good Boy Deserves Favor, which is a play that unfortunately requires a symphony orchestra, so it doesn't get done that often. I am going back to the London stage next... Well, we start rehearsing in February when Hamlet is over um, to work with my friend and colleague and, and oh, you know, one of my heroes, Ian McKellen. He and I are going to do something together, and I can't tell you what it is. I know this sounds like the biggest <laughs> tease in the world, but every time I think about it, I get goosebumps. It is more exciting, I think, than anything that's ever come my way before. And it's going to be the two of us, you know, like that for a couple of hours. Huh. Um, and uh, so that's going to be a brand new experience for me. New playwright, never done him. I mean, not new, new to me, that is. And um, and then this, you know, I'd, lo I'd love, you know, I said I was 22 when I played Goldberg. I'd love to play Goldberg again in the birthday party. Um, and and there are other classic roles, you know, that that are sitting around. I've never done Molière, for example. I've hardly mm. ever done any restoration comedy. I was very bad once in a production of The Relapse. Sounds like quite a list. Sounds like we have quite a bit to look forward to. 
Well, I do. <laughs> and we, <laughs> and do we do, too. too. <laughs> Patrick, thanks so much for being with us today on Down Stage Center. Thank you. I've had a good time. Likewise. Thanks, Patrick. For the American Theatre Wing, I'm Howard Sherman, reminding our listeners that these programs and all of the education and media work of the American Theatre Wing is available online, on demand, for free from our website, www.americantheaterwing.org. And for XM Satellite Radio, I'm John Von Susten. For Downstage Center, that is a wrap, and thank you. The American Theatre Wing encourages all of our podcast fans to share our programs with friends and colleagues, but we remind you that any commercial distribution, commercial use of our programs, or program modification is prohibited without our express permission. We appreciate your cooperation and invite you to contact us with any questions. Thanks for listening.